What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Celtics Collective, brought to you by Heavy On Sports. I'm your host, Adam Taylor, and I'm joined by our resident insider, Mr. NBA himself, Mr. Sean Devaney. What's going on, Sean? Hey, Adam. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. The Celtics are undefeated as we record this, so uh, I'm doing well. Before we get into the actual talk discussion of the start of the season, I do want to give everybody a rundown of what they can expect. So... This first segment is going to be myself and Sean talking about Jason Tatum at the start of the year, why he's unquestionably the best player on the planet. Obviously, there's no bias there. Then we're going to look at, you know, what the rest of the team, what other players have been balling out, anyone that can improve, areas the Celtics can improve. We're going to take a look over to the Western Conference to look at one team that's just had a terrible start to the season and it fills us with joy. And then we're going to look at the Eastern Conference again for another team that's had a really bad start to the season, which fills us with joy. In the second half of the of this show, we're going to be joined by former Boston Celtic Chris Heron, where we discuss a bunch of stuff from playing at Durfee, his recruitment phase, and then choosing to play at Boston College, the addiction battles that he faced, both as a non-professional during his younger years at, at college and then moving into the NBA, his interactions with Chris Mullen, both before the NBA, uh, early NBA, and then after leaving the NBA, his happiest times in the league, both with the Denver Nuggets and Boston Celtics, obviously for very different reasons. And then what he's doing now and how he's trying to give back to the community. It was a really fun interview, though, right, Sean? Like, I found that it because it was so different to most other basketball interviews that it, it kind of hit home and it was a real good topic that we hope that can help people. Yeah, it, it definitely went beyond basketball. I And, and, and you know, anybody who, who is uh, uh, familiar with Chris's story, uh, knows what he went through. I mean, he was he was in the class of 1994. He was the best player in 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 all of the land. Like he was the the guy. Winds up going to BC and and uh, uh, you know had set some records in in Massachusetts in terms of uh, you know scoring and and winning and, and you know he, he was just such a great player. Uh, and then to uh, to to see him deal with that as he's dealing with addiction. Uh, you know, another thing we talked about too was was Lenny Bias, uh, 1986 number three pick for the Celtics, uh, who probably would have been, um, you know, just judging who you talk to, as close to Michael Jordan uh, as it could have come. Uh, and, and and he died of cocaine use, and 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 that was very much in Chris's head. So just just, just a great interview, and just just an interesting guy to talk to uh, in terms of what he's been through and where he is now. Yeah, I found the interview really, uh, really educational. I did like growing up out here. I didn't really know much of Chris Heron. The interview, actually, I've looked for it since. It's not something I can load up like um, a Netflix and find. And we don't really have the thirty for thirties out here unless they're big time. So it was awesome to kind of hear a story that, and then see how that's affected his life positively, and then how now he's trying to give back to people and in the Boston community and then throughout the country as well. So no, it was a really great interview. If you've still stuck around, that means you haven't skipped ahead. So you actually want to know what me and Sean have to say right now. We, we thank you for that. But if you want to skip ahead and come backwards afterwards, we don't blame you either. <laughs> I mean, I, I hold no grudges. No grudges held here. No, absolutely. <laughs> but let's 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 dive into the stuff we want to hit on. So obviously, Jason Tatum is numerate uno on the ducket. He's just been electric since the start of the season. He usually, for a guy that comes out so slow, 
and really clunky usually at the start of the season. He's still figuring out his distance, still figuring out his shot release, his timing and all of that stuff. Everything's just been money. He's been draining buckets left, right and centre, three points, two points at the rim, in the mid-range, from the post, off the drive. And a large part, part of that, in my opinion, has been the, the added tempo that Boston are playing at. Seems to really help these guys settle into a rhythm early. And then they tend to flourish because of that tempo and because of the spacing and everything else that it provides. But Man Tatum was named Player of the Week about 15 minutes before we started recording this as well. Is there an MVP case? I mean, we're three games into the season at the time of recording. I think it's far too early, but that's definitely a conversation that I've seen floating around. So let's get Sean's opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think uh, it, it was ridiculous to talk about Jason Tatum as MVP before the season started. I mean, here he is. He's averaging 35 points uh, and leading the league in scoring uh, before, you know, th three games in, obviously, we've got a long way to go, understandably. But, uh, you know, he's showing everything he can do uh, on the offensive side of the ball. And 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 I think that that aggressiveness uh, is, is, is welcome. I think that, you know, he's been a beneficiary of the pace that the Celtics have played at. Um, you know, and, and, and that's what you want to see. I mean, you want to put your best guys in their best positions to do what they do. Uh, and I think that, that Joe Missoula, you know, that's a credit to him because that's some, um, this is clearly a different style of play. I think Ime Adoka wanted them to play faster, uh, but he also wanted them to focus so much on defense that they didn't play uh, as fast as they could. I think they are playing much faster. I think they're moving the ball much more. Um, we're not seeing those dead spots where, you know, the ball kind of dies and it winds up in Jalen or Jason's hands and it doesn't move. We're seeing the ball move so much more. And I think that that's keeping defenses uh, on, uh, uh, on, uh, uh, on their heels a little bit. I think the other thing, Adam, to, to think about is that I don't think Jason Tatum has ever played better defensively. I think that's the other thing is that he is right now the best offensive player in the league. Three games, understood, but he's also one of the best defensive players uh, in the league. I mean, he is he's averaging 1.7 blocks right now. Uh, he is uh, averaging 8.3 rebounds. He is doing everything on the defensive end as well. Uh, so, yeah, he's got a pretty strong case uh, through one week, understand, <laughs> understandably uh, a short period of time, but – uh, right now, he's he, you gotta you gotta think about him uh, when when we're making uh, early preseason uh, early season uh, uh, MVP cases. See, the one thing I want to say there is what you touched on with the defense is interesting, right? Because Tatum's defense as a as an individual, as a point of attack guy, as a off ball like defensive player, has been exceptional, as you said, to start the season. However. Boston have certainly allowed their defense to slip in favor of that offense, right? And yeah. I think that at the moment, we're leaning too far one way. We're leaning too far into the offense, and the defense is, yeah, fair enough, you're still winning games. But Tatum said it after the, the Magic game when he was speaking with Abby Chin, was like, hey, we let up 100 points, 100 plus points on opening night. We let up 120 points in this game. That's not who we are as a team. It's not what got us success last season. Finding that balance, that middle ground where the offense is still fluid enough that you don't get those dead spots, but the defense is still stringent enough that teams come in thinking, how are we even going to crack 100 tonight? 
finding that balance is going to be the biggest task on Joe Mazzula's kind of like in tray. His inbox right now, the pinned task on that inbox is find some balance. Yeah, but but I like what he's doing though. I oh, like I like the fact that the, uh, the the emphasis has been on the offense because look, this is the same team defensively as it was last year, especially once Rob, Rob Williams gets back, uh, and it's going to probably be a better team defensively because you've got Malcolm Brogdon out there, who's a very good defender on the perimeter. Uh, they're going to get back to where they were defensively, and even right now. So right now they're averaging uh, 113.6 points per game uh, uh, per, per 40 minutes, per, per uh, uh, 100 possessions, uh, and that's ninth in the NBA, which which is not great compared to where they were last year. They were first, uh, but that's not bad. You're ninth. I mean, that's you know, out of 30 teams, you're still ninth. So you know, through three games. Um, you know, the defense hasn't been great, but I'm not that worried about that. I like what I see offensively, and I think they're going to tighten up as things go uh, forward defensively. Yeah, so I've said this on many a podcast episode review that, you know, there's no no point being a top five offense and a bottom five defense or a top right. five defense and a bottom 10 offense. You need that balance, right? And you don't need to be the number one defense in the league. You just need to be a top seven defense in the league top eight and then be a top eight offense and all of a sudden you have so much more balance than 95 percent of the nba you're you're one of the most complete teams around you don't need to be number one on both categories now the warriors last season did spend a considerable amount of time ranked first in both and they won a championship but that's the warriors and the, the league was going for a whole bunch of issues you know people picking up covid there was a bunch of 10 days getting thrown around there and hardship exemptions. So I try not to put too much stack, um, stuck in the in like the point differential and the, the net rating metrics from last season because if you look at that without remembering all of those things that went on for a large portion of the year, the season, then those numbers don't tell the whole story, right? So I, I'm I'm a, I'm in a, I'm inclined to agree. I do think that once Robert Williams comes back that defense naturally takes a step because you can, you have such an elite rim protector there and an elite shot deterrent where he's just around the rim so you don't even want to venture into that area. I think once Rob comes back, it naturally improves. But the, the offense has been fantastic. I mean, if anybody follows me on socials, you've seen I've been posting a bunch of stuff that how Missoula's been doing it differently to Udoka. Not that Udoka was bad. It's just different, right? And it's not yeah. just Tatum that's benefited. Jalen Brown, other than that magic game where I think he was he was forcing the issue a little bit down the stretch... I do feel like a lot of those shots were forced from in the second half. But other than that, Jalen Brown's been excellent too. He's He's been a man on a mission. Yeah, and I think we saw that even in the preseason, that 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 co- going back to, uh, you, you know, the trade rumors and all that, uh, that, that, that he really wanted to make a case for uh, how good he is. And, and he probably would have done that ever. But he's been fantastic defensively as well. You know, I mean, so so he's averaging, you know, 25 points. He's averaging five, uh, five and a half rebounds or so. Uh, but he's also averaging about a steal and a half and about a block and a half a game. I mean, he has been uh, on, on both sides of the ball really getting after it. I think I, I and, you know, when you always hear this and, and, you know, Greg Popovich used to tell a story about how in the first day of training camp, what he would do, uh, no matter who was there, he would yell at Tim Duncan. He would find something that Tim Duncan wasn't doing. He would yell at him. 
because he knew that if I if 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 you see the coach yelling at the star player and the star player takes it, then everybody else has to take it. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that with the Celtics where you've got Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown really putting themselves out there. They want to win this year. They are just they are they are really putting it out there. Uh, and and if the star players are doing that, then everybody else in the roles after that are going to be doing that as well. And I think that when you look around and that's a really great point with Tim. I miss Tim Duncan. Don't you miss Tim Duncan? Yeah, I do. I do. I miss Tim Duncan. But it's a great point. And other players in the team have started stepping up and everybody seems to be holding each other accountable. Derek White had a huge night against Orlando. I think it's interesting that just heading into the season, we saw the report that Derek White had been working with Ben Sullivan on fixing that shot, right? Because Ben Sullivan came into Boston at the start of last season with a reputation as like this shot fixer. He came from Milwaukee. He'd been working with Giannis, helping Giannis develop that three-point shot, helping him develop that mid-range. And obviously Giannis is now quite a reasonable shooter. And he's come in. He's worked with Derek White over the offseason. And suddenly Derek White is now Ray Allen. Like, <laughs> some, 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 somewhere has just changed. And but it, yeah, it's for, for three right? games, we're ready to call Derek White. Ray Allen. <laughs> well, I mean, we're calling Tatum MVP after three games. I mean, one's more true than the other. But if we're making sure. outrageous statements, we're making outrageous statements. I mean, but no, like Derek White is a knockdown three point shooter at this point of the season. In three games, he has been, he's hit more threes on his own than the, probably. I haven't looked at this, but he's most likely hit more threes on his own than the Lakers have as an entire unit. <laughs> the Lakers are right now uh, as as I mean. When you have your team leader going into a, a press conference and saying, we can't throw a penny into the ocean through three games, holy cow. And I just, I, I mean, I honestly, Adam, I look at this team and I, the, this Lakers team, and I just wonder, like, does LeBron care right now? It doesn't seem like, and just watching the, the body language uh, between him and Anthony Davis and just, uh, you know, I just I, I don't see a lot of care factor uh, on that team, uh, and I just I just I don't know. This this seems like an absolute disaster uh, in the making. So late in the first quarter or early in the second, I can't remember which one it is. LeBron gets the ball almost at the halfway line. Just twelve seconds left on the shot clock, and he jacks it from nearly half court, and he air balls. And I, yeah. like, at that moment in time, I was like, he don't care. You don't care, right? How can you? No, right, right, and I, and that's I, I've been talking to people around the league about you know what, where do they stand and all that stuff, and uh, and, and Westbrook and 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 you know if you talk to people in the league, like nobody thinks that Westbrook is that much of the problem as like everybody else thinks. It's it's more like LeBron and Anthony Davis. Like you've got to care about this. Like you've got to care, uh, and and you know Patrick Beverly as a. Uh, uh, as a, as a mostly uh, you know off the bench cheerleader or uh, you know just just limited minutes cheerleader, uh, he can only do so much. Uh, you need LeBron and you need Anthony Davis to care, and I'm not sure they do at this point. No, and they had very happy. Like Stephen A. said today, which I found quite interesting. Stephen A. was like, um, LeBron, you said you didn't want to talk about Westbrook, you didn't want to be drawn in on those conversations, but you were the dude that sat there on opening night saying. This team doesn't have shooting. We don't. And you knew you knew who everybody was going to look at when you said that. You understood the narrative that you were feeding into. 
Mm-hmm. So you're ha- but now you're like so I understand what LeBron was saying like hey you're not going to get a direct quote from me but at the same time you you made your feelings clear on game 1 you said it again in game 3 we can't throw a penny in the ocean now obviously I think that there's a point where you're pressuring the front office to make a move LeBron wants to win another ring he, he, we're all aware of that I don't think Anthony I don't think Davis is as locked in as he was before he won his first championship I think I don't think he's been the same dude since then and Westbrook, to me, if he, if the ball's not in his hands, and people have said this for nearly a decade, if the ball's not in Russ's hands, Russ might as well not be on the floor. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. And, and, and the irony of all this, Adam, is that the team that is best positioned to make a trade for Russell Westbrook and send the Lakers some players – uh, is three and zero, and that's the Utah Jazz, right? I mean, like, like that—that that is the team that you know. Once the the Buddy Heald and and Miles Turner stuff broke down, uh, as it did during the summer uh, between the Lakers and and the Indiana Pacers, uh, then then it was the Jazz uh, that that seemed to be the team uh, you know most in position to make a deal uh, for Russell Westbrook, uh, and they've been talking on and off pretty much since uh, uh, since July. Uh, and and yet nothing's gotten done, but we could see all that come back again. And, and I just wonder, you know, I mean, maybe the Lakers just finally throw in their cards and say, you know, we'll give you our two picks. They've got the two picks, 27 and 29. They give them those two picks. They give them Russell Westbrook, and they get, uh, uh, you know, Mike Conley and, and uh, uh, Rudy Gay and, uh, you know, a collection of players to uh, uh, see if that can help their roster. I don't understand where any where any other deals could come from. Like it makes sense for for Utah. They're winning and they want to lose. Let's get rid of some of the players that are helping us win. We can yeah. buy Westbrook out or we can bench him. But if we want to keep losing, fine. Indiana want to lose, so it makes sense for them to move on from Turner and Heald. But the other team that's been kind of floated as like, hey, the Lakers have a huge interest in their point guard, not well, their shooting guard, their combo guard. Is the Charlotte Hornets? Oh, yeah. we want, we want. Um, sorry, I said someone text me. We want Terry Rozier and Gordon Hayward, and in return we're going to give you some draft picks and a um, a Russell Westbrook. Well, that doesn't really work for Charlotte because they've just been through their rebuilding phase. Are they willing to re-enter a rebuilding phase? Because they're not going to play Westbrook when Lamelo's back. Yeah, and they're, they're, in a, they're in a tough position because they've got to. They've look. I mean, they're 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 on the clock for Lamelo, right? I mean, they've got to they've got to resign him. They got to have him for an extension and all that stuff. If they go through a, a rebuilding point uh, here in his third season, that's not going to send a great message, and and they know that. Uh, at the same time. They know what's happening with Miles Bridges. They know what's happening with James Booknight. They, they know that they've got these players that are in serious trouble that they've invested a lot in. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense for them to uh, to reboot here and 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 to send away Gordon Hayward, who hasn't been able to stay healthy and is is, is thirty two, uh, and 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 send away and, and send away Terry Rozier. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, on the on the Charlotte Hornet, Hornets part, it's just what message does that send to Lamelo? Is that you know three we're, three years in, we're still uh, you know we're still juggling these balls, and and you know it's 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 a tough situation. I think that they, uh, from what I understand, they want to rebuild, like they want to you know send away what they've got, 
uh, and, uh, and and start bringing in some picks and, and, and thinking about the future. Uh, but they are worried about, you know, we've got this star player. What's that going to what, what's that going to do for our future with him? The first thing you need to think of there is the fact that Beasley's now pretty much gone. You don't know what's happening there. So you need to be able to sell Lamelo on the fact that, hey, you're potential all-star running mate is no longer with this team. We don't think he's going to be coming back. Hayward hasn't worked out. Rozier, he needs the ball a bit too much to be able to play alongside you effectively. We're going to need to rebuild. And if you, you can, we want to rebuild around you. We want you to be the star. And to do that, we need to make this trade. There is a world where you can sell Lamelo on that and like, make sure that he understands that you're rebuilding to accentuate him because he came in. Was it the same year that Hayward came in or the year after? Well, it was around it was the same year, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like he's never had a team built around him. He got slotted into the team that was already there. You know what I mean? So now, like he just basically replaced Kemba. So now this is where you could sell him on being that star and being built around and having a team that really works around him. But he's got he's going to have to eat two or three bad years to do that. And you just don't know how stars are going to be willing to take that. Right, right. Especially, you know, his uh, his extension year is going to be, uh, you know, after next season. So, you know, they're going to have to talk with him about that then. And, yeah, it, 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 it's tough. I mean, on the one hand, you know, you know enough about about the balls to know that, uh, you know, if, if, if the plan is we're going to do everything around you, maybe that'll maybe that'll work. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, uh, you're going to be asking to play uh, in in a very small market uh, for a, a team that's not going to be very good for at least three, four years. That's tough to do. Yeah, it's really tough to do. But there is another team that's struggling at the moment who's still on the Eastern Coast, and they don't have a Russell Westbrook to trade. In fact, they don't really have anything, any more moves to make in terms of rebuilding their roster because they went all out during the offseason, bought in a PJ Tucker, a DeAnthony Melton, who I'm very high on as a player, a Daniel House. And it's still not working. And they're 0-3. And it's hilarious to me. But the Philadelphia 76ers are not the team that we all expected them to be starting the season. Again, three games in. Plenty of time to figure it out. But right now, it still just looks disjointed the same way it did the end to end last season. Yeah, and I, I think the big thing with them is their bench. I mean, uh, you know, their bench has just been terrible uh, throughout the the, the time uh, that that Doc Rivers has been there, and that's 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 not changed. Uh, you know, they they've got to be able to uh, you know go to their bench and have some guys that they can rely on. I think they thought they were doing that with with Daniel House. I think they thought that bringing in some better starters would would, would help out the bench. Just hasn't. They, they have a terrible, terrible bench, uh, and they lose. You know, whatever they have building up uh, with their stars, they lose it. They lose it uh, uh, when their uh, uh, when their bench comes in. Um, I don't know that Tyrese Maxey and, and and James Harden can coexist. Uh, ultimately, you know, uh, you know, I think Maxey is a guy who, man, you got to give that guy. He is so good. You got to give that guy the ball, but you can't do it while James Harden is there. Um, and and then of course you've got you've got of course you got to feed uh, Joel Embiid as well. So uh, yeah, I think there's just too many miles to feed right now in Philadelphia. 
Uh, I think in the end, we're going to see Doc Rivers, uh, old Celtics friend, uh, Doc Rivers. We're going to see him uh, on the hot seat. Uh, I'm not sure he deserves it. I think it's just the, the way the roster is right now. I think him make some changes. And I don't know what those changes be. That's no. the problem. Right. That's the problem, right? Like James Harden against the Celtics dribbled the ball more times on his own than the entire of the rest of his teammates put together. And that's James Harden's style of play. You knew that when you acquired him because you've got over 10 years worth of sample size to understand this from. You know that Joel Embiid needs to be run, needs to have the ball over on the post or above the perimeter. He's not really going to be a guy you want to get ripping through the lane and feeding him. So now you, you're very much in a half-court-based offense. And everybody just saying, do you know what? I feel like the Sixers are where the Celtics were two, three years ago. They've got the talent, but the mo- the movement isn't there, rough ball. The cohesion isn't there with the bench and all the stars. And it's just destined to it. It's, it's just not going to work. Something's going to break down somewhere. And then they're going to have to tweak it again this summer. And then they might be ready next year. Yeah, but I do feel yeah. like the Sixers are still at least 18 months away from being a yeah, contender. Yeah. And, and I don't think Doc Rivers will be the coach when that happens. No, it'll be me. <laughs> of course. It'll be me. No, jokes aside, there's a lot of good young coaches out there. All right, I think we've spoken enough about the rest of the NBA. We've definitely had a good discussion about Tatum and the Celtics as well. So we're going to leave you with Chris Heron. Now, obviously, we're there too. But for the second segment, it's going to be the interview with Chris Heron. Everybody enjoy. Make sure you hit that follow, that like, that subscribe, leave comments, do all that good stuff on the show. And then we'll be back with you again next week to discuss even more Celtics basketball. Okay, Chris, so we'll just jump straight into the questions. I know uh, time's of the essence. When So we'll just start with this. We'll start back in the beginning of your career. When was mm-hmm. when did you first notice that you kind of had a different level of talent to everybody else around you? You know, I, I think in grade school, I think elementary school, um, you know, I think I kind of hit my ceiling within a, within a radius of my home. Um, and I realized pretty quickly that I was the best within that, you know, 50 mile radius. Um, you know, but, but I was willing to continue to push that radius out. Right. And, and so I think initially it was like, when I, when I realized it, it was probably at a very young age, probably nine, 10 years old that like anybody I compete against doesn't seem to have what I have. And how long was it until you started getting national attention? Um, you know, I got national attention late. So probably my junior year, I kind of broke out onto the AAU circuit. We won a couple of national championships, a couple of huge games. Um, and I started getting some recognition and, and, and started getting ranked. But it wasn't it wasn't until late in my junior year that I started getting kind of talks about being a McDonald's all American. I, I, I grew up in Lynn around the same time uh, that, uh, that you were playing down in fall river. Now there's not a lot of uh, uh, Massachusetts, you know, high level prospects that, that came out. I remember when you went to BC, it was a big deal for BC. What, what, what was that, that decision like for you and, and, and sticking around there? I think there were multiple variables, right? I think, um, you know, my parents were going through a divorce. Um, you know, my dad's alcoholism uh, caused 
that marriage to fail. Um, and I wanted to stay close to my family. Um, so that, that played a part. I wanted to stay close to Fall River. Um, you know, I was young, I was naive, I was immature. I, was, I wasn't ready for that next phase of my life, to be quite honest with you. And, you know, when I look back and if I could take my younger self and, and kind of move him around a little bit, I probably would have skipped BC, went into a prep school for a year and then transitioned back down to Newton. Yeah, and 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 do you think you know as you as you look back, do you think that would have changed things, or do you think that that sort of what was always inside you was always going to be inside you? Well, I, you know, I think I think those early years are critical. You yeah. know, I you know I think those are those are ex extremely critical years. I think um, you know not living on my own um, for the first time on BC's campus with a wild a little with a with a wild side to me. Um, you know, I think in hindsight, if my parents had the opportunity, they probably would have sent me to a prep school and let me, you know, see how I adjusted with some oversight in a prep school on their campus, um, but a little bit more freedom. So what, what, what happened at BC that sort of accentuated, I guess, that, that, that wild side? Uh, you know, gosh, you know, cocaine entered my world at BC. Um, I was introduced to cocaine when I was 18 years old, um, you know, and, and cocaine, you know, I had this unbelievable um, power of allowing me to stay up and talk and communicate and be emotional and talk about all these things that I've been through. And, you know, so, so I fell in love with that, you know, like a lot of people, people who've done you know, people who've gone down that road can identify, you know, someone who's never gone down that road, they say that's crazy, you know, but people who have gone down that road, um, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you know, it's the late nights, it's the emotional, the raw conversations you have with people, the honesty that 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 high kind of provokes, um, you know, is something that I kind of fell for, you know, at, at a very young age. Um, again, it's, you know, all these are all things that I, I didn't have, right? I didn't have these tools. Um, and, you know, being 18 years old and being immature and being on that campus, you know, I probably should have been in some type of therapy, you know, at a young age. Um, but that, that kind of, that, that, that behavior kind of fast tracked me. It's interesting that you bring up therapy because I don't think that was, you know, it was still about what, about 10 years after Len Bias. Um, and, and so there was still this view of, of cocaine, especially among, among athletes as, uh, you know, just no, just, just like it's something's wrong with you because you're doing it. BC was sort of punitive to you uh, uh, when you failed the drug test. Um, you know, do you, things have come a long way since then. No, they have. I mean, listen, they, and I say this all the time. BC was had had their approach and Fresno State had theirs, you know, and BC was punitive. Fresno State was more of a therapeutic approach, a supportive approach. Um, you know, I wasn't the only athlete. You know what I mean? So, so they're, they're, I wasn't the only athlete on that campus. Never mind the only athlete. I mean, he, Len Bias, unfortunately... Um, 
you know, I wish those tales deterred everybody from going down that road. Um, you know, I think what people need to understand, and, and I talk about it today, um, anytime you anytime you do cocaine, especially with the with the fentanyl issue today, you're taking a chance of dying. You know, so every guy in a nightclub, every guy, woman in a bar that's pulling cocaine out of their pocket and running to the bathroom, you're taking a chance at, at ending your life. And I see it every day in the work I'm in. Yeah. Every, every single day I see or hear about someone going out on a Friday night and doing a little couple of lines of cocaine and it was there last night. Um, you know, and at a very young age, that wasn't the approach for me. Like Christopher, like you're 18, you know, you're jamming cocaine up your nose. You need help, dude. Like you, we need, we need some help. Um, you know, and I, and you know, what's wild to me is, you know, when people think about my story, they, they, they think about the Celtics, they think about the overdoses. Um, probably one of the loneliest days of my life was when I walked into that office on the campus of Boston College and they told me that I was no longer welcome. Because that walk back to my dorm room to pack up, um, there was no hiding from that. Like I had a problem. I had a drug problem and they punished me for it and they, they tossed me off campus for it, which I'm, I totally understand. I'm not pointing the finger at BC. Um, that was their approach. Um, and, and to be quite honest with you, it's still that approach for some college, you know, communities and some college campuses is still very punitive. When you went to Fresno and you said that was more of a supportive environment, did that help you kind of steer away from the cocaine issues or was it, was it still happening, but you just felt there was a bit more support? Maybe it wasn't as frequent of usage. Yeah, there was less usage. You know, I, I, I built up more sober time, right? Like I was going to AA meetings. I was meeting with the therapist. So there was, there was more therapeutic incentive to, to stay, you know, and I was introduced to this world of sobriety. Um, unfortunately, today, people, and, and especially back then, people look at sobriety like a punishment. Oh, I can never do this again. Like, no, you can never, you know, do cocaine again. That's okay. You know, like, thank, thank God, you know, that, that you've come to that kind of crossroads in your life where you can't do that anymore. Um, but it was looked at, it was looked upon as a punishment for me at that age, you know, that I could never do instead of kind of the narrative being like, you have this beautiful, you know, life to live in recovery. You're just, you know, you you have an allergy to, to alcohol, to drugs and, and, um, you know, but that's not the way it was laid out to me in 1994. Is, is that how you were you able to see it that way uh, uh, at all? You know, with that that you're an alcoholic first and 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 then the cocaine comes or, or you know, it's, it's got to be tough at, at that age uh, to kind of see the, that big picture. Oh, of course, because everybody thinks right. Like they just want to you just you just want to talk about the cocaine and the alcohol, not the self-esteem and the self-worth, not like the trauma that's buried under all of this. 
right? It's like, you, you need to stop doing cocaine. Okay. I get that. But I have a, I have a bunch of other stuff I need to unpack. Um, and you know, the, the alcohol was probably the toughest thing at 19, 20, 21 years old to, to end that relationship. Right. And, and when you end that relationship, um, you know, the, the chances of me doing cocaine, if I wasn't drinking were nil, I just wasn't, it just, you know, and, and people will take this statement how they want us to take it. But for me, that's, you know, it's peanut butter and jelly. You know, they, they, they just go together. It's Oreos and milk, you know, like that's, that has to be for me. And that's why I had to come to the realization that not only can I not do cocaine, but I can't, I can't drink alcohol. You move into the NBA and yeah. obviously everything kind of opens up for you, right? You become, there's a whole new world, there's a whole new presence, money's coming in and you're over with Denver. How did like you balanced the basketball and the drugs during college? How was that balance first moving into the NBA? Was you sustaining it? I was sustaining it. You know, I, I was, again, it was like, it was important, right? It meant something. I had teammates that, that wanted recovery for me, that knew that I belonged in sobriety. Um, my experience in Denver was phenomenal. Uh, you know, it was an older team. It was a bunch of veterans, McDice, Popeye Jones, um, Bryant Stiff, uh, you know, Chauncey Billups, Nick Van Exel. I had, I had veterans on the team that really kind of embraced my struggle. And, and, and wanted to see me come out the other side. And that's why Denver, um, you know, was probably one of the funnest, happiest, lightest years of my basketball career. And, and just to go back just before the draft, uh, you'd gotten to know Chris Mullen, right? And I just yep. wonder how that relationship uh, came to be. So, you know, some people say Jerry West, some people say Steve Nash, right? I mean, it was one of the two. I've heard a couple of different versions. Um, you know, Mully doesn't really remember, I don't think. I think it might have been Steve Nash. I think that's what we kind of figured out. Uh, wanted Mully to mentor me because he was familiar with recovery. Right. And, and as soon as I got done at Fresno State, I moved to Indiana and I moved in with Mully. And I started training for the draft, but then shortly after my wife uh, gave birth to our son. So I was only in Indiana for about seven, eight days training. And then I, and then I jumped ship and I went down back to Fall River where um, my wife, where we were starting our family, where, where my son was born. Heading back over to the NBA. So you, you have this year that you just described as probably one of your most more like like you, you that's the one you look back on with the most enjoyment or one of those and it, then all of a sudden you get traded to boston how did how did you react to that did that tr throw any kind of issues into the sobriety aspect going back home no because it was in between seasons right it was i was introduced to oxycontin at the tail end of my denver nuggets career <laughs> you know my denver nuggets season um far from a career I, I kind of took that problem with me into the Celtics and I knew 
I knew when I got traded that this was a nightmare beginning. Like, there's no way I'm going to be able to manage my addiction, my alcoholism, myself, um, being in Boston. You were, as I've heard, you you were doing a lot of OxyContin by by at your peak. Yeah, I mean, I was I was you know sixteen hundred milligrams a day, you know, spending around twenty five thousand a month on OxyContin. I mean, and it's it's uh, that was plain that was plain for the Celtics. You know, I was, and typically you 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 do you know if if you were in pain, whatever it'd be fifty, a hundred milligrams, something in that range. Yeah, I mean, no, I I would think it probably if people come out of surgery, they're usually given like 10, 15 oh, really? milligrams of oxycodone. You're doing sixteen hundred. Yeah, eight hundred wow. in the morning, eight hundred at night. Wow. And that's not to get high. That that's to hide it to keep the secret. That's. What was the support systems like? Obviously, you say Fresno was a really supportive. Did I mean back then? I'm, I'm assuming it's different now. Or, but what was it like with the NBA teams? Were they aware of this, or was you genuinely trying to hide everything from them? No, they were aware. They they were aware when I came in when I came into the NBA that I had a history. Um, you know, they put me in. I was working with a guy in Denver, um, Dr. Backus, who who headed up the substance use program in the NBA, um, connected me with a person in Denver that kind of got lost in the shuffle when I moved back to Boston. Um, you know, and I don't say this, I, I say it with, you know, it just in 2000 and 2001 substance use wasn't looked up, looked at the way it's looked at today. Right. You know, in 2000, 2001, you know, you had this moral characteristic, you had bad character, um, it wasn't looked at as how we look at it today. And I think today they would deal with me a lot differently than they did in, in 1999 or 2000 and 2001. You know, I, 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 I think about that and, and I wonder, you know, especially in the sports world, um, the way that, that it's viewed to where you're not seen as a bad person, but as a sick person, mm -hmm. um, you know, you were at the forefront. Do you take some pride knowing that that you had something to do with changing that? Certainly among sports fans, and the, and, and that you, you had something to do with 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 showing people that look, I was I was this level athlete, and 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 this happened to me not because I'm bad, but because I was sick. Oh, I take great pride in that. Right. So does my family, my wife and I. We, you know, we released this thirty for thirty eleven years ago. Um, you know, and, and not knowing then the impact that we would have. Um, but, you know, the fact that over the last decade or so, we've, you know, with the help of many, um, kind of chipped away at the stigma that's attached to this, this illness. Um, you know, and if you look at college sports today, you know, if you, again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm referring back to 1994, but I, I probably wouldn't be kicked out of BC if I was, if, if I had the same problem I had back then, because my first three drug tests, I tested positive for marijuana. The last one had cocaine in my system. Um, so if I was a college athlete today playing at Boston college or any other school, I probably wouldn't have been kicked out. And that was, you know, 25 years ago, 20 years ago. The, the the journey that you are you're now 14 years sober is that right correct 
the journey, that journey and, and deciding that, um, you know, you could get the most out of it, uh, not only to help other people, but I assume it helps you as well to, to, to tell your story. Uh, how did you kind of get, get onto that road uh, and, and get that started? You know, it was a total accident. Um, it wasn't intentional. I, uh, you know, I do about 250 speaking events a year. Um, you know, I tell people all the time I played in 82 games. I thought that was a lot. Um, but 250 speaking events a year is quite a, quite a bit. Uh, and it all started with a woman who invited me to her classroom. Um, there was an article that Mark Spears wrote in the Boston Globe uh, when he saw me at a Celtics game with my son. And he wrote the article and it talked about, you know, my history and what I'd gone through. But also um, that I had recently lost my license uh, because of my substance use and because of driving under the influence. Um, but a teacher read that article and her high school was within 10 miles of my house. And she said, you know, I really want you to come speak to my health class. And uh, she said, I know you can't drive. I'll pick you up and I'll, you know, I don't have any money, but I'll, I'll, I'll buy you Dunkin' Donuts. And, uh, and that was the launch into my speaking career. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. I, I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about speaking. I, I had no intentions. I mean, what people don't understand too is unguarded wasn't supposed to be unguarded. Um, unguarded was John, Jonathan Hawk and his crew were following me, um, in a basketball gym. So, my 30 for 30 originally was going to be about me kind of rebuilding my life with kids, you know, teaching them how to play basketball, spending countless hours with them in the gym, building their self-esteem, which I was super proud of. But then at the end, Jonathan Hawk traveled with me to, to a speaking event. And, and Jonathan Hawk said, wait a second, like we have to pivot. Like this is, this is the documentary. The documentary is going to be in your voice telling your story in front of these people. Um, so the, the documentary changed pretty quickly and, and it was an adjustment for me and my wife because, you know, we didn't have a lot of time to say like, okay, we're okay with this. We're okay with putting our whole, you know, family out there and our story and our pain. Um, but you know, that's how kind of unguarded, you know, unfolded. And so it, there was never an intention to be this advocate this public speaker on, on drug addiction. It just literally happened organically. And I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that. You know, public speaking is, you know, you can market yourself as much as you want, but it's, it's a word of mouth business. You know, like people don't hire you unless somebody told them, you know, he's, 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 he or she is good at what they do. Um, you know, when I, I signed on to a speaker's bureau, uh, 10, 10 years ago. And they told me that my career would probably be about a year and a half, you know, like unguarded would fade away. The book will go away and then there'll be no more speaking events. And, you know, here we are 11 years later. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you, just kind of, I'm sorry, go ahead, Adam. Sorry, Sean, it's my fault, man. How, what's it like when you're doing these speaks, these speaking events and how everybody kind of knows you now, it's very public, right? You're very open about the struggles you went through. Whereas a lot of 
people going through addiction it's always an anonymous type of alcoholics anonymous and what so mm-hmm. how do you handle and how do you deal with just being so open and do you ever worry about being labeled a certain way or yeah i, I mean i i think i i'm not worried about labels i think i'm going to be i think we all i'm labeled regardless right people are going to make their you know they're going to have their opinion um I've been extremely transparent and vulnerable and open from the very beginning. You know, I, I don't, if I can make a difference in someone's life, if I can walk in that room and make them kind of look at their own, um, you know, then that's the spirit that I've gone into this with. Um, you know, I think when it comes to drug addiction, we talk about the worst day and we forget the first day, you know, it's like, let's sit, let's sit our children down and have them watch unguarded. Let's sit our children down and have them watch, you know, the Todd Moranovich story, you know, and it's like, talk about the beginning with our children. Ask them why. Ask them why they can't function on a Friday night at 15 years old in a basement with five kids they've gone to kindergarten with. You know, like, let's let's talk about the self-esteem and the self-worth, why you don't have the confidence to, you know, you... Like I say often, like my mom, she died at a young age. If if I if I could pick up my mom today and, and put her in this in this car with me, it would be, you know, how come you never asked me why? You know, like why didn't you grab me at 17 years old when I was playing in front of five thousand people at Durfee and be like, You're really good at this, but I, I need to know why you, you struggle, you know, after the game in the basement. Yeah. Um you know, and those are the questions that need to be asked. And that's that's the discussion that parents need to have. And, you know, I know one thing, my speaking, I, I'm, I'm proud of it because um, the last two teams I had in training camp were the Philadelphia Eagles, and they're undefeated. And, that, and, and, the, ne- and the next day I had TCU, and they're undefeated. So I got, I got, I got two undefeated teams that I dealt, I, I spoke to right before they went into the season. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, just one last thing for you, Chris. Are, are you? Do you still play basketball, and are you still a fan of the NBA? Do you are you a Celtics fan? Um, I think I'll always be a Celtics fan. I was born with that. You know, I, I was born, I was born into that. Um, you know, the Kevin McHales, the Larry Burrs, the Danny Ainges, the DJs, the Roberts, um, you know, that that was something I was born into. I will always uh, be a Celtics fan. I, uh, I'm a people fan. I'm a person, you know, like I root for good people, you know, and if there's good people out there and, and I know um, I root for them. Uh, you know, it's it's I'll always love the organization of the Celtics. I don't know the players. Um, I don't know. I know I know Missoula. Right. I've known him for a long time. He's a phenomenal human being. Um, but I don't know really the players. I root for the players that I know. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, Steph Curry's been phenomenal to my family. Um, I'll always be a Curry fan. For, for for how he's extended himself to me and to my children. Um, I'll always be a Kevin Durant fan on how he extended himself, Blake Griffin. You know, Blake Griffin was the first athlete, as soon as Unguarded aired that night, he, he 
messaged me for my address and he sent my children, you know, autographs and sneakers and um, him and Jamal Crawford immediately uh, jumped on it. So those are people that, you know, I'll always, always root for. Interesting. Awesome. Um, honestly, usually I'm really good at signing off on these, but so I'm just going to say thank you for coming, coming on the show. It's, yeah, yeah. It's a, definitely a different type of discussion that needs to be had i'm glad that we could do that here uh thank you for being like so open and unguarded mm. really appreciate it thank you very much chris yeah no listen i i it, it's you know anytime i get an opportunity um you know i didn't know what i was walking into to be quite frank right like celtics um celtics played a very small part of my story but i will say this um the Celtics gave me a platform. I want to be who I am today if I didn't get traded to the Boston Celtics because the, the Boston Celtics gave me um, kind of the notoriety and the relevancy to be out here speaking. Um, so I'll be forever grateful for that trade. It didn't work out um, the way I wanted it to and nor would it could have worked out. Um, because of the condition I was in, but I'll be, I'll, I'll forever be grateful that I had that court to play on to give me this platform I have today. Yeah, great. And I'll uh, next time I see Mark Spears, I'll uh, I'll mention that. That's a great story. <laughs> yeah, Mark Spears. He, ch you know, uh, you know, there's people that had unbelievable moments in my life, right? Um, are we still recording? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, you know, Mark Spears, you know, who he changed, he changed my life, to be quite honest with you. And I, I would, I, I don't hesitate to tell him that. Um, he was part of the, the, the launching into this world of public speaking. And, um, you know, obviously, Chris Mullen, obviously, Jonathan Hawk uh, changed the course of my life. Um, you know, I was familiar with journalists because at Fresno State we had Adrian, we had Wojo and yep. Andy Katz. Andy Katz were our beat writers. Um Risha Candidate and Mike Smith were were the TV people. Um you know so we had some pretty heavy hitters covering us when we when I was in college. Um you know and Mark Spears is a San Jose State guy. He's you know he's from the he's from that area. So he was well aware of Fresno State. Um but you know I it's it's interesting that you know strangers strangers can change lives you know you just never know you never know the impact you can have right that that the the impression you can make or the gift you can give um and and the people i just mentioned have had a profound impact on me and i you know not only on me but you know the harem project you know we've we've given away 8 million dollars of scholarships in 10 years you know, um, I was on food stamps 14 years ago, you know, and now we give away $8 million to people who, who deserve care. Um, and that's, that's, that, that's, that's a, that's a huge win for, for all of us. Um, but without them, you know, we, we, I wouldn't be here and I'm well aware of that. Yeah. Just to wrap up, Chris, what, what's the, what's the way that, that, that people want to find out more, want to find out more about the Chris Aaron project. Uh, we work on the go to find out. 
yeah, heronproject.org. Um, you know, and you know, I'm I'm right now I'm at my wellness center. So I have 36 people living here um who are struggling with alcoholism, drug addiction, mental health. Um, you know, Heron Wellness is something I I launched um five years ago. And over the last five years, we've had 700, 700 people um, come through this program. And, and, you know, if anybody out there is struggling, uh, Heron Wellness, Heron Project would be an unbelievable resource for them. Well, thanks a lot, Chris. I really appreciate yeah. your time here. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you guys so much. Enjoy. Make sure you hit that follow, that like, that subscribe, leave comments, do all that good stuff on the show. And then we'll be back with you again next week to discuss even more Celtics basketball.